I mentioned that we would deal with the Lord's Prayer this afternoon, so if you turn to page 562 of the Book of Praise, you'll see there that we obviously hold to the Lord's Prayer, but with the time of the Reformation and different understandings of the prayer, then the explanation of it also became something that we confess. So Lord's Day 50 of the Hadeberg Catechism, what is the fourth petition? Give us this day our daily bread. That is, provide us with all our bodily needs so that we may acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good and that our care and labor and also your gifts cannot do us any good without your blessing. Grant, therefore, that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in you. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, does it ever seem to you to be a bit surreal to be praying for your daily bread when all the while your pantry is well stocked, your freezer is full, and you need a bigger fridge? Everything's there just waiting to be opened, to be mixed or thawed or cooked or fried or baked. We usually have this great assortment on hand, ready to serve guests as well. Why even pray for our daily bread when we have several weeks' supply at hand? Well, let's think of others for a moment. How about the people of Fort McMurray on May the 3rd, 2016? All heading down the highway in a long convoy, stop and go southward. They developed a whole new appreciation for give us this day our daily bread. This day, because no one could think beyond the day at hand, wondering whether they would get through or not. This day, because they had nothing in which to keep food for many days hence. And this day, because that's what their stomachs started saying after a long time on the highway, we need food now, this very day. You can appreciate that people going through these sorts of difficulties, think back to the tsunami or the flood in New Orleans in 2005, that prayer takes on a new meaning. And this part of the Lord's Prayer teaches us a lot about trusting in the Lord for everyday things. When we pray according to the model that Jesus taught us, we should grow in depending more on our Heavenly Father. And if we pray sincerely, give us today our daily bread. It's also a cure, actually, for the sin of pride and idolatry. The sin of thinking that we don't need God because our pantries are full anyway or that we don't need his blessing. And so the Lord wants us sincerely to pray each day for our daily bread. And interestingly enough, isn't that petition of the prayer alone at the minimum teach us that we should be praying every day? Give us today the bread needed for this day. And when we do that, we acknowledge our place in creation as creatures who depend on 
our Creator, God. And when we do that, we confess, moreover, that He has a place over His creation and is the only one worthy of our worship and prayer. And so I may preach this message this afternoon that when we pray, we must acknowledge our place in this creation and God's place over it. It's part of prayer, and that's something that this petition particularly brings forward, our place within this creation, God's place over it. The first thing to see is that we we yield to God when we're asking for daily bread. We yield to Him. We let Him have the sovereignty. And the second thing is that when we're praying for daily bread, it also becomes a yearning for God. We yearn for God when asking for daily bread. Yes, that's true. So yielding to God. There are two sides to praying for our daily bread. The one side is praying that we receive enough for each day. It's the prayer of someone in immediate need. Yet moderate in his or her asking, one who has little yet depends on the Lord from day to day. That's the one side of praying for our daily bread. The other side is that we would limit ourselves to the day at hand. And this side of praying for our daily bread is like the limiting side, a prayer that we not give ourselves over to seeking more than we need, just for the day. And the prayer for more than we need is never far from us. We ourselves may determine that we need something, and then we start to pray for it. And it seems just the perfect thing for us. And yet the Lord Jesus teaches us by this prayer that it's enough to pray for the amount of food that we need on a given day. So the Apostle Paul wrote in our reading, I'm going to refer to it a number of times in the sermon, in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Well, why did the Apostle write about being content with so little, just food and clothing? Well, he's writing to Timothy, a young minister who had worked at the Apostle's side for several years already. And Timothy was in Ephesus, where the Apostle Paul had already worked for some years before, and through him God had established his church there. Elders were already ruling over it. And now some of these elders were beginning to teach false doctrines, and Timothy is to act as their teaching elder, their pastor. One way or another, there were some elders who imagined, or some people there who imagined that teaching was a means to get money. And Paul warns Timothy very strongly against this thinking. These men, he says, are conceited, malicious, and have robbed themselves of the truth. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, we have to guard ourselves that as pastors we don't become pastors because we think we can get lots of money. There's also concern in the church, this would be particularly in the south of the United States, that there are people who preach what they call the gospel as if what God wants you to do as a Christian is get lots of money. It's called, I'm sure you've heard this at least, the health and wealth gospel and it goes by some other names like name it and claim it or um, blab it and grab it 
was another one. Um, and I had heard about it a number of times, so I thought I should know more about this. If you've known, seen the name of Joel, Aust- or Joel Austin or you've seen his huge smile, that's how he sells lots of books. Um, or Kenneth Copeland. These are kind of neo-Pentecostal, Holy Spirit um, people who marginalize Jesus and focus on human need and felt needs and preach in such a way that people like what they, they say. And a number of pastors and authors in the USA are saying then that spoken words have a power of their own. Like we prayed God's word we know is so powerful as to create the world and renew our hearts. They talk about human words being like that. And if people will just name out loud, not just in their thoughts, but with their voices, what they want, in a short claim, they can also claim what they named. It will be theirs. So one book recommender spoke of the condo he had named and claimed and the 57 Chevy, which he had named but had yet to claim. Maybe he thought someone would offer him a Chevy after that. Well, the faith of these people is not in God, but you see they get this view of certain magical power of words. And they look down on other Christians who remain poor, asserting that their poverty is simply because they fail to name what they want. And they say all people are gods with a small g, and have complete power over their environment by the words that they speak. So if we speak positive words, words of health and words of wealth, we will have health and we will have wealth. And if we don't, well, we only have ourselves to blame. And these teachers appeal to Christians with the message that anyone who is godly ought to be healthy and rich as well. Godliness is a means to gain. Godliness brings riches, and if that's the case, then it's no longer godliness that is the point, but it's the riches that are the point, and godliness is just the means to get the stuff you want. Well, that's a far cry from the prayer of our Lord Jesus, give us this day our daily bread. And because of this prosperity theology or health and wealth gospel, Let's ask ourselves, how many people turn their backs on God when a forest fire hits and destroys all their possessions? Or a tsunami, or a flood, or a famine. Because these name-it-and-claim-it preachers have even stated that they can prevent storms by claiming their possessions in the face of the storm so that it goes around them. Well, then, any time trouble comes, one could just ask, well, why didn't they claim more? Why didn't they claim protection? When death comes, why didn't they claim life? And by their false gospel, they have no doubt turned many people away from the gospel forever, for their teachings have failed in times of crisis. Well, when we pray for our daily bread, we need just the opposite mentality of the health and wealth movement. Our concern must not be to tell God what he must give us, but to yield to God. Give him the way. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the Apostle Paul writes. And contentment is exactly the idea of yielding to God and being happy with the outcome. Because you're just so certain that he is in control. And those who are content are not stirred up to anxiety. They don't worry. 
Those who are content are not stirred up to jealousy and envy. They don't manipulate. And those who are content are not stirred up to anger. They don't fight. Well, they may have a righteous anger at times. They rest in God and have peace with his will. Now, godliness and contentment in one person makes that a beautiful person. There's certain books you read, certain novels, where the main character has this godliness and contentment together, and you you just wish you could emulate that. You never feel like you are imposing on them. They walk with God, and they have a way of helping others understand this. And there's great gain in this, for through it many are brought closer to the Lord. Why should we be content like this in our prayers and in our life? Well, 1 Timothy 6 verse 7 tells us exactly why. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Job confessed the same when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. So why run after riches when they perish? We cannot even take them with us. In this short life, God gives us material things to help us on our journey to heavenly places and let us use them rightly before they perish. It's not that God doesn't care about this world. Far from it. He's going to renew all of it. That's why we said this morning there will be dogs and cats and horses and cows and all kinds of beautiful things. But whatever he gives in this life has the purpose of teaching us to depend on him and to be content with depending on him. We're to use everything towards the coming in of the kingdom of Jesus Christ because it's all his already. As soon as you say that all these beautiful things are going to be made more beautiful in a new creation, you're basically saying that they already belong to Jesus Christ. He died to redeem this world. And God rejoices when we act as good stewards who put his material gifts toward the advancement of the very kingdom that's coming, the only one that's everlasting. And in light of that, we can ask how much do we really need for ourselves? The Apostle Paul writes, but if we have food and clothing, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. That will be enough to satisfy us, he means. And to be content with these means that if we have less, we shall simply ask God for our daily bread and yet accept what he has determined. If we have more, we shall use it thankfully. And in verse 17, we read that God, um, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. What a blessing that is. To receive all things and not to think, oh, by chance this just comes to me and by chance somebody else gets that. But my heavenly Father has determined sovereignly what I need and has given this to me right now to honor and glorify him. And one of the ways that we can enjoy God's gifts is given in verse 18. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. 
That's exactly what we need to hear in a time when, in many ways, we're very well off. And in other ways, we're in this rat race trying to stay ahead. We need the perspective of daily bread. The Apostle says in verse 9 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. I remember once having lunch at the family of a member in the congregation and the father owned a business and went through the usual items in prayer and then prayed and Lord we pray that we will make a good profit this week. I'd never ever heard anyone pray that before. It says here that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. You don't know who I'm talking about, but I can tell you that this brother fell into many temptations and snares. We should not desire to be rich. That shouldn't be our aim and our goal. Verse 10 tells us why. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And yes, sorrows came with the greed. And note here the apostle didn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not. The love of money. The desire for money. And Something we can learn from the scriptures is that we're to love God, not money. We're to love the creator, not created things. You can enjoy created things, but that word love in scripture is reserved for God. You love your neighbor, but you have to love God first. That tells you something about what love for neighbor means. It's not the same as love for God. Love for God is higher. What's love for money? Well, it's the same as putting created things ahead of God. And the basic problem is then that the thing you're serving isn't God, so the thing you're serving must be an idol. And to serve an idol is to worship something from creation instead of the creator. And money is a part of creation. Now, I know economists may have different ways of thinking of money, but a very simple way of thinking of money is I can either have this car... And then I have $10,000 out of the bank, or I can have the $10,000 in the bank. Either way, the car or the money represent the same amount. And that means then that if you have the car, but not the money, you can make the car your idol. But if you decide, I really want money, but not a car, you can make the money your idol. But either way, it represents the same thing. It's worshiping creation instead of worshiping the Creator. And so love of money as the root of all kinds of evils, greed, jealousy, manipulation, breaking the law to get more money, etc., etc., it's idolatry and a root of all kinds of evil. And anyone who turns away from God for created things is bound to plunge into all kinds of evil. And what a sad thing that so many people would, would go for this counterfeit gospel This prosperity gospel, it would be better to just call it a prosperity movement because it's not really a gospel, instead of the true thing, which is the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus Christ and eternal life 
that all things are yours, but they're yours in Christ. It's precisely because they're yours in Christ that the way you obtain them now is by faith, not by having them in your hands. The only way to have Christ is by faith. And so the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread, to pray in Christ, and to be content, accepting what God provides with us for each day. It is enough. Seek neither poverty nor riches, the writer in Proverbs says, but only our daily bread. And by now you should have noticed then that praying for daily bread is not merely a matter of physical realities. It's ultimately a spiritual question of the condition of our hearts. It has everything to do with our hearts. It's a spiritual matter whether or not we are content in the Lord. Do we accept his plan? Is his wisdom, do you really think God's wisdom is good enough for you? Or actually in your heart, do you always wish your life was different? You should never accept your sin. You shouldn't say that's okay. But in terms of material things, Jesus didn't promise his followers a a wonderful, victorious, in the sense of wealthy life, but a life in which he would assist us by his Holy Spirit to fight against sin. Are we content with that? Are you content with that? And do you consider the possessions he gives you as a trust, where he's testing you to see, will your heart remain true to him while he gives you all these things? And will you also show your love to your neighbor by sharing with those in need? Do we bear, do we, Do we give worship to God above all? Are we content in the Lord? Do we say, just give us the food for this day, yielding to him? That should give us a wonderful peace as his worshipers. And part and parcel of praying for our daily bread then becomes yearning that God be in the first place. So we yearn for God. The real answer for the temptation to be immersed in riches is to be, on the other hand, not just say, I'm not going to touch riches. Be immersed in something else because you're made to be immersed in things. Be immersed in God. Be immersed in godliness. And the verses 11 through 16 of 1 Timothy 6 are the positive command of the Apostle Paul to Timothy explaining how he should conduct himself as a good example in Ephesus. He shouldn't give any room for the false teachers. He should point away from the love of riches, and in its place he should hold out something far superior. He must pursue righteousness, verse 11, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And by pursuing these, he will have contentment in the matter of earthly riches. And he might even be willing, like the Apostle Paul, to sow tents and and sell them to support himself, if he has to, and not complain while he does it. And when the Apostle talks about pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness, that word pursue Yearn for these things. Go after them. Get them. They're what you really need. And what does it mean in the end? He says, you, O man of God, pursue these things. Well, those are all the things of God. Righteousness. Love. 
gentleness and patience. Isn't that how God is with us? This is about pursuing the Lord himself and all the things that he wants for his people. And then Timothy will realize what we're here for. And the truth is something else that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he told the Corinthians who were fighting with each other and were jealous and were envious and so on, he said, hold on, all things are yours already. In principle, the whole new world that's coming is for you. So why are you fighting about this little corner of it and that in this life when the whole world coming is for you? He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. That means that we belong to God through Christ, proof of which comes by the Holy Spirit in us and therefore we're here to yearn for God. And the Spirit in us expresses these yearnings for He loves the Father and the Son and the prayer for our daily bread does not contradict this but powerfully supports it. Because we're limiting ourselves to daily bread, we're putting it in its place and helps us then love God with all our heart, all our soul, and strength because we delight in Him as the giver and He's on the receiving end of the prayer. So that's why in our catechism we say what we're praying is grant therefore that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in you. That's the connection between you're praying for daily bread. How does the catechism get to placing our trust only in God? Well, we acknowledge God as the giver. The very fact that you pray to him. The very fact that you, with all the things you have, still pray says... Lord, none of these things can do me any good unless you give your blessing, so I am praying for your blessing. You're more important than all these things. Your word about these things for me is more important than all these things. We don't worship what he gives, we worship the giver. And so this fourth petition teaches us this truth that we are here to yearn for God. He's greater than all our paychecks, our cars, and our houses. He's greater than the whole earth, greater than the entire universe. He's our Lord and our God. For him we live, for him we yearn, him we enjoy, and we will enjoy forever. And it's only by enjoying him fully that we can enjoy his gifts the way they were meant to be enjoyed. They should be enjoyed. You shouldn't become an ascetic or a monk who has to punish your body and deprive yourself of all these things. But when you receive them, you receive them as gifts of your heavenly Father and you ultimately give him the glory. Money is, we have to love God above all. And, and it's not even that money is there to be loved in the second place. The second place is to love our neighbor. And so here's one way of getting at this. You can say money is for using, not for loving. God is for loving, not for using. And if you follow the prosperity movement, what does God come to be? God is for using, not for loving. Because you just use God to get what you want. But the scriptural message is that God is for loving and not for using, and all the things he gives are for using so that you might love him. And before these things perish, let us use them for good. And as long as they're under our control, let us do as many good deeds as we can with them, for who knows what may come after us, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. 
We could say a few words here about our vows also. When we vow to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, or to bring our children up in the fear of his name. Vows at baptism and profession of faith. Well, then we remember that God makes a vow to us. He says, you have an eternal covenant with me. And in that covenant, you are to love me with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And so when, we're presented, when we present ourselves to confess our faith, we're asked, do you declare that you love the Lord your God and that it is your sincere desire or your heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world and to crucify your old nature? We say to this, our amen. We say, I do. And so what does the Apostle Paul write to Timothy in the midst of his reminders to Timothy not to trust in riches? He goes back to Timothy's confession of faith. He says that Timothy is to take hold of the eternal life to which he was called and keep the command without spot or blemish. Not to hang on to earthly riches, but to grasp the heavenly riches, to take hold of the things of the good confession. And when the apostle says, take hold of, your, of the um, eternal life to which you were called, that's like saying, you made a vow in the presence of many witnesses, fulfill your vow. Take hold of the thing you committed to. Don't delay in doing it. What an encouragement for God's people. And when we're reminded again of that verse that all things are ours, that we belong to Christ who is the ruler of the entire universe, who in principle has begun a new creation in his glorified body, who's bringing it all about and it's all done with his sheep's name written on his heart and carried through on the cross, then everything we have and everything we do is in light of a new creation. Since this creation is not the be-all, end-all, but is under the curse. We are working towards another. And so then why would we want to keep and hoard the things of this creation? They're all to be pressed into the service of Jesus Christ who says every square inch belongs to him. It's also of all of your possessions. And so you can have your possessions today with that eternal perspective. And when people around you don't understand it, then you say, but, but I'm not living just for this life. This life is really short. My life is really short compared to as long as the world's been here. But as long as the world's been here is really, really short compared to how long it's going to be here in a renewed form. And I'm looking forward to the day when I will be in a new creation. No more sweat from my brow no more famine, no more forest fires, no more anxiety or concern for my daily bread at all. And God will carry me through because it's all made new in Jesus Christ. And so in light of this, brothers and sisters, we seek today in this life just our daily bread. And we express this complete desire to rest in Jesus Christ and say that God has taken care of all the rest as long as he gives me what I need for today. And we need to reconcile that carefully in our minds with this whole um, life that's full of insurance. Life insurance, mortgage insurance, property insurance, car insurance. It becomes part and parcel of the laws of the land that you have to have it. But watch out. Watch out that you don't start to think, I'm all okay 
I've got my insurance, I've got my pension, I've got my this and my that and my investments. No, brothers and sisters, pray for your daily bread. And when you take some money out of your investments, pray for your daily bread again. Because you're not just praying that God will provide, but also that he will give his blessing on what he does provide. And we just have to work that out in our minds and hearts and ask the Lord for grace so that we can distinguish between a proper and a legitimate use of our money and a right use of it for taking care of ourselves and our society, but at the same time giving to others, and do all of that without becoming lovers of money. And brothers and sisters, you can only sort those things out rightly when you put God first and everything else second. God and all his commands, God and all his gifts since their gifts are to be used for him. And remember that it's only in that context that we can pray for the blessing of bountiful harvests, modest profits, simply meaning enough for my daily bread, and providing for my family and those in need, and then all kinds of other blessings. Remember the Lord was pleased with Solomon when he asked for wisdom rather than riches. And if only he had remained that way. So in line with this, if we have first sought the glory of the Lord's name, then we'll also put the material blessings to use them for his glory. And then we'll acknowledge our place in creation. We're just dependents. God's our father, we're his children, and he writes us down as, these are my dependents. Isn't that beautiful to think of your father in heaven writing down that you're his dependent? Yes, you cost him money, as it were. Indeed, ultimately, you cost him the death of his dear son, Jesus Christ. But because of that, he's our father, and he provides us with all things necessary for body and soul. We yearn to be near him, to live fully for him, and to enjoy him forever. And this one, we will know, as it says in 1 Timothy, and I'll close with these verses, Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only potentate, that's like the ruler one with power, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, which none other things on this earth have, except our souls, as God is preparing us for a new creation. But he alone has immortality in himself, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.